Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the Word and Journey podcast, late night edition. Word and Journey is stories, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think. And yes, that might be my clumsiest intro ever because it is late night. And I thought that the early mornings are bad. So this will be uh, this will be fun. Uh, the listener who's been following along will know that uh, most of our episodes thus far have been done very early in the morning. And I've been wishing I could have scotch, because, but I can't do that in the mornings. And now it is late night. And I still haven't gotten the scotch because I was not organized enough. So pity me. Next time. Next time I will have alcohol. <laughs> but in the meantime, here I am. <laughs> yes, I need to organize my life better. Anyway, but here we are. I have chapters with you. I have a fabulous, most excellent guest for you as well. And this is a momentous milestone for me in all of my podcasting history and all of my multiple podcasts. This is the very first time I have ever podcasted with a family member. So you won't be able to tell it from our names because I'm using a pseudonym. But I'm going to welcome my very own younger brother, Jeremy Pissimio. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I would like you to say a little bit about yourself, the coolness that you are for the listener who does not have the pleasure of having known you for your whole life. Okay. Well, as you said, younger brother, I am married, expecting my first child anytime within the next week to due date of October 9th. So that's exciting change coming I'm going to be an uncle. I know. Super excited for that. I'm very excited. Oh, gosh, I wasn't prepared for the whole intro thing. Let me see. Interesting facts about me. I have spent pretty much my entire life studying and training in some form of martial arts or another. So that has definitely shaped a lot of how I view the world and think about things, uh, both from the traditional kind of the more Zen warrior aspect to practical combatives. The balance of those is uh, definitely the lens through which I view everything. Um, I was also raised, as you were, in a non-denominational Christian church, so there's definitely the filter that comes with that as well. And as uh, you mentioned scotch, I do have to say the Lagavulin 16 I'm sipping right now is an excellent recommendation if you can splurge on it. So for next time. <laughs> for next time. Yes. Thank you. Great, to, great to meet you, know some things about you. And yes, I'm really excited to meet your kid in a little bit. So <laughs> me too. That'll be good. Yeah. Martial arts. That, that's super fun. It, um, I think that, well, I'm going to presume to speak for a lot of people that I don't really know, but I get the sense that people don't fully appreciate just the lens that martial arts can be like, uh, there's maybe like the, the Hollywoodized version. That's like very much like flashbang kickflip that's meant to like, you know, dazzle. But from what I have observed, you know, you learning is very, yeah, like you said, it's very much a way of life, a way of thinking, right. A way of understanding yourself, uh, a lot of self-discipline, much more than just beating up bad guys. 
Absolutely. Uh, the the self-discipline is really the, the biggest thing of it. And I think the thing that a lot of people don't always realize, you know, maybe some kids, teens, or even adults will want to get started in martial arts because they saw a cool movie or maybe an MMA fight and they think, oh, that looks cool. I want to try that. And then they get started with it and they realize the amount of work and discipline that it takes. And that's where we lose a lot of students is because it goes deeper than just being the cool new thing that you're going to try for a while. It's like, oh, this is actually work. I wasn't prepared to work for this. So it is, it's, uh, it, it's, it takes a lot of dedication and uh, that definitely has a lot yeah. of overlap with a lot of other areas of life. Definitely. It seems like it's a very transformative discipline in, in, in a lot of ways, like, and, and not just like, well, like, like physically transformative as you're, you know, honing muscle, learning moves and everything. But it seems like, like you talked about it, you know, you have to learn some disciplines and kind of build up a, build up a toughness and a resilience and, um, yeah. you know, yeah, definitely. it's, um, and again, this will vary. Your mileage may vary based on the school culture and the instructor you have and the organization you're a part of. But overall, the transformation is one of the goals. I mean, if you go back to like actual history of martial arts, when traditional karate as we know it first went from Okinawa to Japan, one of the reasons why it became popular was the practitioner who helped popularize it in Japan. That's how he sold it, basically, was as a self-improvement mechanism and less of a combative fighting style because this was getting taught to children and university students. And it was build sound body and sound mind and, you know, become a better person through martial arts, whereas its origins in Okinawa was more, hey, someone's attacking you, kill them first. So that's that more zen version of the martial arts is what was sold and popularized in japan and then trickled through until it got to the states and that's still like one of the biggest selling points in america for martial arts is hey enroll your kid in karate give them confidence give them self-discipline and uh, when approached properly it really does have those effects i really love the sound of that it's occurring to me that sometime probably probably not tonight and maybe not even in the context of this book but uh it'd be great to talk about uh, the intersections of martial arts and like spiritual disciplines, <laughs> because that it would, sounds like there's a lot of parallels. That would be a, a fascinating discussion, actually. But yes, for another night. <laughs> okay. Okay. For another, yes. When we'll both need Scott for that one. So yes, and when anyway. I actually time to like organize my thoughts. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'll be great. Now that we've said all of that about martial arts, which I'm glad we got to do. Uh, so uh, I did not actually invite you to do this particular book because of martial arts. It just now occurred to me that, that there is that connection. So we are jumping into Fight Club, the book by Chuck Palahniuk, the 1996 novel that later became a movie. This book has been on my reading list for I don't know how many years. I just kept putting it off. So I really appreciate you putting this forward as the idea because it gave me an excuse to finally pick up a copy and start reading it. And, um, yeah. you know, just going through the first five or so chapters, like I'm really glad that I'm finally reading this. It's it's just a very interesting writing style. And especially with the the context of having seen the movie multiple times, I figure most people our age, maybe just a little bit younger, it's just kind of an icon in pop culture. Like everyone knows about fight club, even though you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. First rule. But everybody does. Yep. First and second rule. Yes. Which will make sense later in the story. (laughs) Yeah. But (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, I think I've been aware of this, you know, story since, you know, late high school for me. Um, so I've, you know, and I've had a chance to see the movie a couple of times. I read the book once. Funny story. Um, everybody's going to think like this is like my very favorite book in the world because the summer has just been the summer of Fight Club. But I actually got to guest on another podcast called The Commentarians. And the premise of that show is they, they watch the movie and do the commentary as if they were like, <laughs> as if we were like in the show. And so, right, right. Yeah. There's this episode of me and the host talking for two hours about, you know, all of the stuff in Fight Club, which was fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sounds like a blast. Oh, it was cool. I was a little disappointed that my mic didn't work quite right. But that's me being a per- that's my perfectionist part. What I'm running into. So, I mean, I, I love the story and I just like the, the concept of it. I, I was running into, though, like as I was reading it. It was a very different experience than trying to analyze it because in the movie you can kind of take them, take in the whole chunk a lot more easily, but like slowing down and looking at different points more in depth, uh, was different. And I think some of it has to do with the, with the style, with the, with the writing style. And so that's what we get to look at a little bit. Yeah. So jumping into, so again, so this is Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. It's, um, I think what it, I mean, what do you say the premise is? <laughs> the premise is about like a guy who can't sleep and like starts beating people up, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, I don't yeah, know, like, but it's up. so much. It's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of fighting, and like for sure, like in in the Hollywood version, like that's what ends up becoming famous is there's these there's these guys beating each other up. Although, like even even with like a closer watch, the movie like reveals like a whole lot more nuance. And as I'm reading through the book, I'm seeing like, oh yeah, there's like a lot of other nuance. Mm-hmm. Uh, put into this. So I think it's actually quite brilliant deep down. But all that to say, now that we've been talking about what we're going to talk about, let's talk about it a little okay. bit. Sounds good. Upon First Street, from right. So from within the first, uh, first few chapters, what are some of your first impressions or critiques, questions, comments? So just on a, a stylistic note, like one of the things that it jumped out at me it's the way it's written because this is not the way it's presented in the movie the movie is very smoothly done you know but the the writing style reminded me are you familiar with any of the movies that are done by um guy Ritchie? he did lock stock and two smoking barrels he did snatch he did the new king arthur uh it, it, it he has a, a visual style when he makes his movies of a lot of really quick cuts and rapid moments of storytelling to where a character will mention something and it'll cut away for like three seconds just to show a brief snippet of whatever they're talking about happening. And then it goes back to the main line. And that's kind of how I felt about certain sections of his writing style with fight club. It was that really the quick cutaway, like talking this and then like two sentences of something completely seemingly unconnected and then back to the main story. And it's like, it really, yeah, it it captured my interest. You know, it made me want to keep reading because, like, you were not guaranteed that from line to line you were actually going to be reading a cohesive thought. It was, and as I was thinking about it more, especially like in the first couple of chapters where he's really talking about his insomnia, you have to think, you know, because I I know you've worked at kids and teen camps and stuff, and you know what lack of sleep is like. Although not to that effect, when you don't sleep. <laughs> You don't think right. clearly. Your thoughts are jumbled and you are scatterbrained. And that's kind of the, that was the sense I got. I literally felt like I was reading an insomniac's mind because he hadn't been sleeping. And the, 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 the story just kept jumping from place to place to place. And I just thought that was actually, like you're saying, one of the nuanced things of it. It's just a, a really nice stylistic choice of the writing. 
to really help show the essence of what that insomnia life is like. It's a really great example of uh, the medium fits the story really well because there is that, that intertwined, scattered feel. I mean, there's also very much like stream of consciousness. So just there, there's a sense of like like a running mind and a racing mind. And and because it is also fairly nonlinear, because uh, like chapter three coming up, I think is possibly one of like the finest bits of writing like I've ever read. But there's like three different storylines being woven in that are all happening. Uh, I think that I think each storyline is happening in order, but like they're, they're covering different times and, mm-hmm. and yeah, so they're the, yeah, the, the feel of it is like an agitated feel, which again, fits the character's state of mind and kind of fits the tone of the story. It, it's kind of an abrasive sort of story. Yes. The, the actual writing style definitely conveys that. So question for you. Yes. Cause this, this was something that kind of occurred to me when I was reading it. Did you watch the movie before you read the book or did you read the book first? I did. Okay. So I I, saw the movie first. Okay. Same here. And they're just like little lines that I've noticed throughout that only like have meaning to me because I know the end. And like, I've been finding myself going through this. What if scenario of what if this was my first time reading the book and I didn't know that twist at the end. You know, like, would I just completely gloss over this line or, you know, how would I be feeling about this? Because uh-huh. it is it's kind of uh, random and weird, you know, when he says, like, I know this because Tyler knows this. It's like, that has meaning. That's a lot of meaning. But yeah. only because I know what's coming up. So I, I, I keep finding myself wondering, it's like, hmm, what, what would the experience be like if I didn't know how this is all going to turn out? Yeah. The foreshadowing is really great. And, uh, and I, I definitely noticed this when I watched the movie, too. Like... Like, like this, my second time through the movie, second and third time, I was like, oh, okay, okay, now I see where that is. Because it's, I think, well, I guess ideally, if you're being like a, a cooperative reader, you just kind of like enter the world and let the details show up. And you don't necessarily know what to look for or what to pay attention to, but you're just kind of like, okay, you just kind of assume that things are status quo, normal-ish, and then, and then you get surprised. So, and there are many surprises here. So... Digging into some some technicalities. So who are our characters that we meet here? So so our protagonist doesn't technically have a name. We've sometimes like unofficially like dubbed him Jack because uh, there's there's some references later in the story. Uh, he's like reading some articles that are like uh, anthropomorphizing different body organs. And it's like, mm-hmm. I am Jack's spleen. I am Jack's liver and everything. So we could call him Jax. We could call him the narrator, but he doesn't. He doesn't actually have a name. He's an insomniac, business person, kind of a kind of a mid level management office guy. And then again, I mean, the way he's depicted in the movie is like he just like like very white collar, suit and tie, just like pale faced under the under the fluorescence. Like, and what starts to come out here is this guy who's just like in this endless loop of like paperwork and really meaningless work. Part of part of what I part of what I really like about this is how they'll take they'll take some jobs like like there's or what is it he's a he's an insurance guy or something and he like processes yeah, he's, uh processes uh insurance claims to see if uh the, the he puts forth the formula to see whether the company should could, should do a recall or not and basically if the loss of yeah. life costs less than a recall they don't or cost i don't remember the exact but basically they they trivialize the cost of injury at life because their cars blow up and they decide whether or not to actually recall the product based on that. And he's the one to make that decision. 
Which is an interesting theme. Interesting theme. So death is an interesting theme, I think, in, in this story. Like opening scene, our protagonist has a gun in his mouth, and you know, like early on, like you know, within these first chapters, you know, he's he's in the support group and like you know, just deep diving, reflecting on someone, someone's death. And like, he ends up like hooking up with this woman who's like always on the verge of death. And, and then here in this chapter, there's this way that he's like working with these, like these really horrific scenarios of like this car blew up and burned the whole family alive. And it just like very, like he's like very desensitized to it. Mm -hmm. So which is kind of, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about is just, commentary on you know society and culture and like this sort of stuff can can get pulled off i guess it, may, it makes you wonder i guess we could look at this as an invitation to stop and think huh just what do i think of death like am i am i bothered by it am i trivialized by it am i just so numb to everybody else's deaths because it's happening all the time i guess there's this interesting tension of i can be so over inundated by say like violence and other people's deaths that i it doesn't seem to phase me, but then if I try, if I actually think ahead to like my own death or like the value of my own life, then there's like all of this angst, uh, and then I might just start to do all sorts of crazy things to avoid actually thinking about it. Which is something that you kind of see this character start to do too. I mean, it comes up in chapter four or five where he's talking about his little his apartment, uh, his little mm-hmm. IKEA kingdom. Yeah, which I don't know. I just. That that tickles me to think of the IKEA kingdom because like everything about IKEA is just like amusing and overwhelming to me. I still can't go through IKEA without like bringing a snack because it just touches <laughs> my blood sugar. So <laughs> it's a lot of walking through that maze of what is it? It's so Swedish, much walking. Swedish furniture. <laughs> Swedish. Yeah. So much stuff. So many levels. Why do we need so many couches? That's the thing. It's it's, it's stuff. You know, I'm from the the movie version because I did. I got through uh, chapter five, so I, I got through the whole apartment blowing up thing. And just from what I remember from last time I watched the movie, is like that seems to be at least in the the movie version of it one of the biggest thrusts at first. And also a, a trending theme throughout is um, trying to overcome your possessions owning you. Because it's like, okay, well, we don't know what to do with our life, so we buy things. And then before we know it, even though things aren't important, the things become important. And so, I mean, like that whole mm-hmm. purging of his condo right there at the beginning and like just the whole commentary on that. It's like that, at least, again, for, it's been a little while since I've seen the movie. From what I remember, that was like a kind of a major theme throughout at least the first chunk of it was it's, they're just things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just stuff. You know, when did stuff become so important? You know, like uh, yeah, I I have yeah. some nice stuff. I like my stuff. But last year, when uh, my wife and I had to evacuate because from wildfires, there was a, a small, minuscule part of me that was almost hoping our house would burn down because then I wouldn't have all the stuff and I could start fresh. By the same token, I'm yeah. ecstatic that the house didn't burn down because I like having a place to live and I do love like stuff. But there was there was that little part of me that was like, I could I could be rid of it. I wouldn't have to worry about all these things surrounding me, all the clutter, all the things that I don't, that I know I don't need yet. I know I keep around. So I was like, I kind of relate to the sense of like, what if I could just like blow it all up? (laughs) I I hear that. And I think there's the way that this is talking about a spiritual reality without talking about a spiritual reality. And it's a sense of, well, again, like in 
you know, in very non-spiritual, definitely very like non-Christian and non-biblical language there, there it's kind of dancing around this question of like, so what if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul? And like, by the way, who are you anyway? Mm. Mechanically, uh, within like, like the writing of it, we, 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 we could maybe, uh, you know, argue this a little bit. We could argue that, you know, this point in chapter five, when his apartment blows up is, is the actual start of the story or, or for sure, this is the change in status quo. You know, he's got this comfortable, although meaningless, draining life. We'll, we'll talk about the support groups and like uh, what that's saying about him. But then now it's all blown up. Now he doesn't have a home. Now he has to go live with Tyler. And and then a lot of stuff starts to spiral from there. And so this moment sh- stands out as, in a sense, like a, like, a, like, like a baptism moment. Baptism by fire and napalm. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, but there, I, I hear you though, on that sense of like, what if I, what, I mean, what if it all just burned down and would that actually be quite so terrible? And granted, I mean, I mean, coming from us, I mean, that's a very, like, it feels like kind of like a very privileged sort of thing to say. I mean, cause we've, we've never, neither of us have ever been houseless. So right. we can, we can entertain that thought without too much stress. But I'm also thinking about like, you know, within like, like Orthodox tradition, like there's a lot of, a lot of our saintly heroes um, were ascetics, you know, you know, some, you know, quite a few who you know, came from rich families. And as they came into adulthood, they are like, I'm going to give everything away and go live in the desert and like have nothing. And that was you know, very much a, salvi- a salvific moment and part of their, their spiritual growth. And it could become a really, really beautiful thing, a very hard thing, but I don't know. And I think like part of, part of what gets set up in, in the story is what one does with struggle, like in the, in the struggle, in the, in the aesthetic labors, there's, 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 there's this redemptive thing that happens. Although in this story, it's a little bit more of like a dark redemption. Yeah. As you're talking about overcoming struggle again, knowing how the story ends, I'm trying to think, okay, how does he deal with struggle? Violence. <laughs> Lots of violence. <laughs> Not necessarily a healthy outlet. Not necessarily. Yeah, violence and some, well, chaos, definitely. Well, yeah, spoiler, they're going to start what's called Project Mayhem, which mm-hmm. is a, like a lot of chaos and a lot of just not like, not always like violent toward non-consenting people but very much like a like like a destruction you can you kind of get the sense that like the characters are like angry and disillusioned at society or maybe just like frustrated or maybe just like empty in some way and like seeking some sort of outlet and so and so eventually they'll get into like the more destructive stuff uh although here so yeah coming back to what we're looking at one of the other one of the other interesting points i know i know because there's so much good stuff and we know the ending yeah, <laughs> this is almost easier. Like in in the other other books I've done, like I haven't read the, those books before, so I'm like reading them new. So this is interesting reading, discussing a book where I know the yeah, ending for sure. But anyway, one of the really standout world building story pieces is the car the narrator's support groups. In, in the I think it's like the second chapter, second or third chapter, you meet. Um, oh, the first line is. Was it Bob? Priceless because Bob. Yeah. Bob's big arms were closed around to hold me inside, and I was squeezed in the dark between Bob's new sweating tits that hang enormous, the way we think of God as big, God's as big. <laughs> oh, Bob, uh, who was portrayed by Meatloaf. 
So part of what the character does, the character's therapy drug church is to go to a whole bunch of like support groups for things like, you know, brain cancer and, you know, intestinal parasites and lymphoma and like a whole bunch of things. The catch is like, he's not dying. He's not sick in any of these ways. He doesn't have testicular cancer. He doesn't have any of these issues. All of these other people are you know, air quotes, actually suffering. He's not, he's just kind of mooching off of their, their pain and, and misery. And what he discovers is that he can be in the zone, get caught up in it, have a really good cry, and then he can sleep. And so that's his drug. And it works better than any of the medications, which, you know, counselor me is looking at that and, and seeing like, oh yeah. So yes, having, having a catharsis is good to be able to vent and, and to purge and to just like feel is really good and really necessary. But there, there there's some problems because <laughs> he's not actually sick. So that like his whole, the whole setup is, is, is a lie. And, and what we could call out is seeking out this really intense, like emotionally gratifying experience, like without like any actual like growth or transformation, which I don't know, like, like I hate to go here, but I, I this is, a lot of what I remember from like summer camps, like these, these really elevated, like emotional experiences that were super great. And, you know, some, some, some of the kids got to come out of that, managed to come out of that and like actually make incremental changes on themselves. Um, but not all of us, <laughs> I would say not most of us. <laughs> I would say that the, the percentage yeah. of kids that actually went to a summer camp and found God and actually grew and changed because I'd say that's actually a really small percentage. Just again, from my own observations from going to the same camps you did and seeing a lot of the same types of people and having those experiences, they are there. It's the, it is, it's like just a high, you go to camp, you get a high and then you come home from camp and then reality sets in and the high goes away. You know, there's not, not a whole lot of substance behind it unless you have some sort of discipline to follow through with it. Like martial arts. Exactly, like martial arts. So I kind of see like what you're saying with the narrator <laughs> yeah. here. He's goes to these support groups. He has his moment of catharsis. He gets to sleep. But it is. It's, it's completely empty because I, I like the word you say he's mooching off of their suffering. He doesn't have any real suffering of his own. He's got a lot of first world problems. He's got all this stuff and he can't sleep. Boo hoo. You know, how bad is that compared to someone who's having their brain eaten by parasites? You know, it's like it's nothing. So he's mooching off suffering that's not actually his. There's no real fulfillment in getting that emotional release, which I think is, it, it. again, this is where you definitely know more than I do from the counseling background. But it seems to me like he it, it's like he gets addicted to the catharsis of being able to cry. And he's finding that like one support group isn't enough. So he has to go to more and then more and then more until once we get to the point where Marla is thrown into the picture and she starts interfering with his basically his drug supply. Like his first reaction is he wants to lash out because she's ruined his, ruining his good time. She's killing his vibe. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it, yeah, drugs, but not actually drugs. Right. Which there's a whole lot of ways to be addicted, like other than like actually like drugs, drugs. I mean, like, and then part of what we look for there is like, what are, what are the things that give us these intense dopaminergic experiences now we like compulsively seek after, uh, you know, drugs, definitely some kinds of sex, porn, gambling, food, violence, gaming, even like really intense emotional states there. There's something, there's an addictive quality to those, or there's 
there's this high or there's there's an, this intensity even if it's like seeking out like sadness or something it's like if it's like an intense sadness that they can control it's a way of like not feeling other things and uh or like not actually like facing like my own inner self mm-hmm. so we meet a care in within the context of these support groups that uh the, the, the narrator, the Jack, is going to... So we meet the Marla Singer character, who is a very complex character. It's really hard not to see Helena Bonham Carter in this. I know. And she's just so fabulous. <laughs> and then as they're... When they introduce the character in the book, and he's giving that very detailed description, like A-plus grade to the casting director for the Fight Club movie. Oh, so much. the way they cast her, the makeup, the costuming, it was like spot on for the description from the book. It's perfect. So I, I always appreciate a, a really good casting like that. But yeah, like the image of Helena Bonham Carter is firmly ingrained. Like that, that is Marlo. <laughs> right. I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. So Marla makes a really interesting like contrast or, or what's the technical term? A foil. She, she mirrors the narrator and she, or she becomes the, the, the vehicle by which he sees his own shadow side and, um, and even again, again, referencing the movie, kind of the way they, they were portrayed, like oftentimes like the narrator is like wearing, you know, wearing like white or light colored pale clothes and she's often wearing dark clothes. And so there's a way that she kind of personifies the shadow side, you know, she's the faker and I've got to like get out her and I've got to get her being a faker or else they'll see that I'm the faker. And, and there, and there's just that, that that sort of antagonism that, that goes on there, but it was just like I don't know, the the absurdity that goes into how the story is written of like here's these two quote unquote healthy people. I mean they they got mental problems, but like yeah. you know these you know two people that don't have like any sort of cancers or anything like like haggling over who gets to go to which support group or whatever, like, like Pokemon chips. Um, it's <laughs> it's humorous and it's funny and it's just like almost plausible you can almost think maybe a primordial version of trying to set boundaries with people but yeah yeah i did find it interesting um this just kind of occurred to me as we were talking about it the when he's describing one of the the first experiences with marla in the sport group is he's he's hugging bob he's trying to get his cry on and he looks over and she's you know hugging her person for their their brief moment of physical contact therapy and and she's just like smoking a cigarette and like in my mind, that brings division of someone just like she's there, but she doesn't actually <laughs> care. It's like she's she's going to support groups because she's bored. Like she doesn't have anything better to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's getting something out of it. Otherwise, she wouldn't be fighting so hard with the narrator to try to claim more of the support groups for herself. But like there's you almost get the sense that she doesn't need this the way that the narrator thinks he needs it. She has just kind of this aloof disconnect to it to where, you know, she has someone hugging her, just sobbing into her shoulder and she's just smoking. Like she doesn't care. And she's not actually interested in what's going on. Like that doesn't speak to me of someone who needs like the same kind of emotional release that the narrator is going for. She's just more of a morbid fascination or boredom. She's coming at this from a place of boredom, whereas he's maybe more likely coming at it from a place of like aimlessness and loneliness. I don't know if he would say he's lonely, but I mean, he's definitely aimless. Which fun, fun tidbit within the recovery world, we'd say the the three uh, three main triggers for relapse are uh, boredom, isolation, and stress. So between Jack and Marla, they've got all of them, and she's yeah. smoking. Yeah, for sure. 
which I mean, nothing, I mean, no, no moral, anything against people who smoke, but like smoking is terrible for you. <laughs> um, in a support group, no less goodness. Okay. So there's a Marla character, which we'll, we'll meet her more. So chapter three, here's where we meet Tyler, which again, I don't know, chapter, I get as me, me as a writer who aspires to like a good, a good, a bit, good bit of wordsmithing. I, I love this chapter. It's, one of the finest bits of writing I've come across, like in, in all my, in all my readings. Um, and it's just there, there's a, there's a poetry to it. There's a, there's a, there's a rhythm to it. It's, it's catchy. It's bouncy. It reads, it reads like a show, like swing music in the back. Cause it just has, has a good pace. It, there's like three stories going on. So <laughs> there's a part of me that's like tempted to just read the chapter because it's like that glorious. So what we see in the chapter is, you know, and Jack is walking us through kind of his airport life and the way that his work is, he's flying all of the time, all over the country, throughout all of the time zones. And so a major factor for him is he's becoming ungrounded from any sort of regular routine, any sort of regular sense of time, which puts a lot of stress on a person. So even just from like a, like a mental health perspective, this sort of stress, lack of sleep definitely will mess with your head. You're also meeting Tyler, Tyler Durden. Tyler is this night shift night owl person who he works as uh, as a projector changeover person also as a caterer and he's like causing a whole bunch of mischief in those settings uh, and then like the third storyline is jack and tyler's initial conversation at a nude beach exchanging numbers and and it's it, it's kind of portrayed as this almost inconsequential thing like here's this random guy who's like building this giant hand out of logs on a beach and sitting in it. Meanwhile, he's just going um, much more preoccupied with his mundane life, which is kind of an interesting thing. Like he, or I guess, I guess the thing, I think that happens that we can be, be aware of or not is like getting so caught up and like, here's, here's the mundanity of my life. And I'm just going and going and I'm so tired and I'm so stressed that I forget to like stop and look around yeah, I guess you could say you get in that zone and that's maybe one of the places you're most vulnerable to things because you're not really aware. You're not really self-aware or aware of other people and much more susceptible to random people uh, emerging into your life, which is what happens. So, so just... Uh, His name I, was I, Tyler Durden. Okay, good. I just I have to second because I also thoroughly enjoyed this chapter as, as a piece of writing. Again... I feel like I'm cheating because I know how the story ends, but the entire, like the structure of how it is written, not even the words itself, but just the way he composed the chapter. I feel like that in and of itself is foreshadowing to the end because he, the first thing he's describing is he's describing Tyler Durden as this projector operator. And he's describing the process of having to switch from one reel to the other. And then I noticed as I was going through it, and I actually had to go back and reread it that he did that in the writing. Every time he said, I woke up in such and such city, story changed. I woke up in another city, story changed. And it was always back and forth to what he was doing as the narrator and then what Tyler was doing and then what he was doing, then what Tyler was doing. Every time there was a city, I'm like, that's like the projector switch right there, which again, knowing how this all ends, that right there is its own little right. bit of foreshadowing. It's like, that was just brilliant to me. I had caught the bit about the airports, but not the bit about the projector, which you're right. That is really brilliant. Uh, really brilliant foreshadowing. Last line of this chapter. 
His name was Tyler Durden, and he was a movie projectionist with the union, and he was a banquet waiter at a hotel downtown, and he gave me his phone number. And this is how we met. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, following that is in the in the plot, he meets Tyler. Then it details how he meets Marla, and, and that's, again, in the context of a support group where... In, in in that chapter, you know, Marla, like like you said, she's this person, um, kind of like her own like living parasite self, who doesn't really have like the physical suffering and is more bored. And in this case, she's contrasted with Chloe, who's this wisp of a woman who who actually is dying, who actually does die in this chapter. And they, he kind of stream of consciousness reflects on like what must it be like for the soul to evacuate the body. And there's some interesting theological heresies going on there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I guess, well, I guess maybe not like technically, theologically speaking, like, I mean, death is like the, the soul being severed from the body, but, uh, at least in, at least in my tradition now, I mean, we, uh, we recognize like the body is like part of the resurrection also. And so say like, Hey, we should like take care of this and like, you know, treat, treat it well. You know, I don't know if I get the sense in the story that like, there's a lot of value given to one's like physical self. It's more, and I think this definitely comes out later is like the, the body becomes more of like this, this hindrance or this annoyance or this thing to like beat up and master. And like, there's like kind of a form of asceticism that gets introduced, but it's a really like non-nurturing sort of one or a really, really brutal one. So, uh, and it's kind of like into that here. We're just like, Oh yeah, here's, here's, here's Chloe. Here's dead Chloe. Here's the husk of her body. And like, there's not a whole lot of respect for the body that I can see. Well, yeah, and they, they kind of even allude to that in, um, I mean, in the very first chapter when he's describing him being on the roof of that building with a gun in his mouth, and Tyler straight up says to him, "This is how it's got to be. If you want to be immortal, you got to die first. And it's like it, right from the get go, there is like, yeah, so your profound. body is nothing. Like what you're going to do with your life, you know, actually like doing something, not just this meaningless existence. That's all that matters. This body, you know. Whatever. I mean, and I think that as they start getting into the actual like fighting in the fight club and they're just beating on each other, I mean, it's, you don't in, willingly endure that kind of violence and can claim that you actually care about your physical body because you can only take so much mm -hmm. of that violence before you're just permanently broken down and disfigured. So I, I would have to agree that like there's, there's no regard for physical well being. And from from what I've read so far, and from what I remember of the movie, there's not much healthy regard for mental well being either, because it's it it comes from a very weird <laughs> right. skewed place. And there, uh, well, this is something that I talk about when when I'm doing counseling stuff, uh, talking about like recovery disciplines, talking about spiritual disciplines, um, and talking about like how much abstinence should a person have? Like, should a person really never drink? Should a person really never have sex again? Should a person really you know never do this or that? You know how much strain should a person put on their physical body, and and there 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 can be this urge to push oneself a lot, and I think it's because we we need to struggle, or we have the sense that through struggle is salvation, and um and I don't I don't I don't think it's completely fair to to gender it, but I know it like I, I think that shows up a lot in men in particular, or maybe because like for men like I don't know. Uh, okay, I'm getting into like gendering territory, so everybody, please forgive me. It seems like women have kind of this built-in option for for struggle through you know through childbirth. Like that's that's a really difficult struggling thing. So congrats to your wife. <laughs> <laughs>
for for men there's not there's there's not a built-in automatic struggle and in, in fact there's maybe like a lot of ways we we kind of get to dodge it depending on how how things go down but but we 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 deep down know that we're missing something and so maybe this is part of why a lot of us are drawn to risky things dangerous things like really like brutal and violent things not specifically because like we like violence maybe because we're angry but maybe also because there's this part of us that's just like hungering after the struggle or after the the growth or after the hope of becoming something more or or transcending ourselves and so you know what you know tyler and jack and like in the fight club and the project mayhem ultimately try to do i think is like try to try to scratch that itch and, and fill that void only for them it's devoid of any like ideological you know spiritual like really redemptive tradition it's more of like the you're you're most free when you're dead is kind of how the how they the farthest they can get yeah and again there's there's some there's there, there's a seed of something beautiful in there but it's but it but it, it it's very incomplete it's almost like they they, they scratch the surface of something that could be almost a really good philosophical way to live. And then they take that tiny little seed of it and then just absolutely obliterate it <laughs> and turn it into something completely unhealthy. Right? Yes. Um, because probably violence is not the way to Zen completely. No. Well, I don't know. It, that's part of what they, they, they try to depict a little bit, but so here's a, here's a fun, here's a fun writing thing. I don't, I don't know. I don't know everything you know or don't know. Um, so when someone asks, uh, you know, is, is the story any good? And, you know, you can say, yes, it is. Or no, it isn't. Um, that can be kind of misleading sometimes. Uh, I heard about this system of identi- um, categorizing books that I thought made a lot of sense. There's going to be some books that are plot driven and you read them for the plot. And you just, you just want to know what happens. There's some books that are character driven. You read them to just like love the characters and you feel like you've had a breakup when the book ends. There's some books that are um, world building driven. Like here's this environment or world or concept and we're just like playing around in it. And there's some books that are wordsmith books where the, the beauty is in the, the specific words on the page and, and, and how it's written. And so, you know, different people are, are drawn to different things, different writers emphasize different things. I know for me, I uh, definitely am character driven and like kind of plot, kind of, kind of world building. And I, I really try to be like wordsmithy because it's super beautiful, <laughs> but uh, I'd say, I know I'd love to hear your take. My, my, my sense of this book is, is very much a wordsmithy book because like every, every paragraph is crafted to precise per- perfection and made to rhyme with all of the others uh and, and just for it, that that kind of book i, I would have to probably uh, agree with that assessment it's uh because yeah it is, it is like that that's what's captured me the most about actually reading this has been the author's writing style these are not the kind of characters you like like you just you can't like them and if you don't like the character you can't really care about them that much. I find that the characters that I care about are the ones that I really, really like, or I absolutely hate because the characters you like, you want to see how they succeed. And the characters that you really despise, you want to see how they finally fall. And that is just so gratifying, but these aren't those characters. 
you know, you, you, these are just really messed up, twisted people that are doing some really weird stuff. <laughs> the world is just, yeah. it's a, a really bland United States. So there's not much world building there. And at least to where we're at so far in the story, it's not really much of a, a linear story that you can follow to really find out what happens next, at least at this point. So yeah, wordsmithing and just like it, it is, it's all about the writing style, the way he chose to the, the vocabulary choice, the cadence of how he structured the, the sentences, the paragraphs. Um, that's that I would have to agree. That is probably the best thing about the book so far, just in these first few chapters. I think so. Yeah. The more, more plot stuff comes out, but yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, I think that characters are, are definitely interesting, but, but you're right. They're, they're not heroic, at least not at this stage. And they're, they're not quite anti-hero either. Although like, I mean, Tyler kind of is, but they are in a way they are, they kind of are our collective, like, you know, shadow selves uh, and that they, and then part of what, you know, I know within Chuck Palahniuk's like writing style and just like st- the stuff he writes and pokes at, he kind of like, you know, in a sense, like no reader comes out of this unscathed because he kind of like pokes one at everybody, you know, does this like dark humor, like I see you, like I'm calling you out and you know, all of you, you know, all of you Ikea Kings and Queens. <laughs> and, uh, and I forget if he specifically like calls out Starbucks or anything, but, but yeah, so there, there's kind of a way like you, you read it to, be challenged, but not really because it's, it's it's fiction. It's air quotes, not real. So you can right. kind of get close to like actually challenging yourself, but not really if you don't want to. Yeah, interesting is a good way to describe the characters. Like they're not they're not necessarily characters I would want to invest emotionally in, but they are interesting in that the way some insects are interesting, and you just want to watch to see what they do. But I feel like any yeah. any investment into the character again for me having seen the movie first is because in my mind, I see the narrator as Ed Norton. I like Ed Norton as an actor. I see Tyler Durden as Brad Pitt. I like a lot of Brad Pitt's work. I see Marlo Singer as Helena Bonham Carter, and she's amazing. So because I have (laughs) that context of who portrays them on the screen, I think I have an unnatural level of investment in these characters. Because if I didn't know, if I didn't have that kind of visual for the characters... They would be interesting, and I would still want to continue reading it, but not necessarily because of them. More about like how are they mm-hmm. interacting? Why should I care about these interactions? What's going to come of these interactions? But not necessarily because of the characters specifically, if that makes any sense. There's kind of a way like this isn't uh, as as easy as easy of as a read as this. It's not an easy read, or it's it's kind of a it's a challenging story. It's it challenges your conventional way of approaching a story. It challenges story conventions It you know, and that's just on the technical level, like conceptually it challenges like how you see society, how you see yourself in society. You know, it definitely challenges like any sort of like consumerist materialist prosperity gospel sort of thing. Yeah. Not a, not quite comfortable, more sensationalizing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you like that sort of thing, then this is the book for you. And join us next week for <laughs> more fun and games with Tyler and Jack. <laughs> I, I like good challenging reads like this, you know, on occasion. Like they're, you know, it's like salt. You know, a little sprinkling of it is really, really good. I think if those are the type of thing I read all the time, it would just get kind of depressing after a while. <laughs> you know, like 
They could. Like, people can yeah. poke fun at, like, light fluff so, in fiction, but it's a popular genre for a reason. Sometimes you just want some light fluff to feel good and happy. Right. So I guess it would be a hard sell for you me to next do a Dostoevsky novel? I think that would probably be ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd have to do it, like, not late at night. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of scotch for that one. Oh yeah. With that, I'm going to I'm going to call it because we've done five chapters and an hour, and I think we both have bedtimes. Mm. Thank you, Jeremy, for being here. This has been fun. Thank you, listener, for following along. We will be back. It will be fun, whether you like it or not. <laughs> well, thank you again for having me. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading this and enjoyed talking to you about, it, and I look forward to when we meet again to continue. We'll see you then. All right. We will now roll the credits. Word and Journey is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Moses Bernabe can be found at MosesBernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.